This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of adult osteomyelitis from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Starting with a brief summary, osteomyelitis is the infection of the bone characterized by progressive inflammatory destruction and apposition of new bone. Diagnosis requires careful assessment of radiographs, MRI, and determining the organism via biopsy and cultures. Treatment is often a combination of culture-directed antibiotics and surgical debridement of non-viable tissues. In this episode, we will discuss the epidemiology, etiology, classification systems, clinical presentation, imaging findings, diagnostic studies, diagnostic differential, treatment options, treatment techniques, complications, and overall prognosis of osteomyelitis in adults. Starting with the epidemiology, the exact incidence is unknown and difficult to track. However, osteomyelitis is most commonly seen in the following locations. In the spine and ribs in dialysis patients, in the medial or lateral clavicle in IV drug abusers, and in the foot and decubitus ulcers of diabetics. The risk factors for developing osteomyelitis in adults include recent trauma or surgery, an immunocompromised patient, illicit IV drug use, poor vascular supply, systemic conditions such as diabetes and sickle cell disease, and peripheral neuropathy. Regarding the etiology of osteomyelitis in adults, we will discuss the pathophysiology, associated condition, and causative organisms. Starting with the pathophysiology of adult osteomyelitis, the mechanism of spread may be via hematogenous spread, contiguous spread, or direct inoculation. Hematogenous infections originate or are transported by the blood and may be due to bacterial or viral systemic illness. This is the most common etiology in children. In adults, however, the vertebrae are the most common hematogenous site, and Staph aureus is the most common causative organism. With respect to contiguously spread osteomyelitis, these infections are associated with previous surgery, trauma, wounds, or poor vascularity. They are most commonly bacterial, but may also be mycobacterial or fungal in nature. Regarding osteomyelitis introduced by direct inoculation, this may be the result of penetrating injuries, open fractures, or surgical contamination. Moving on to discuss the pathobiology of adult osteomyelitis, we must understand the planktonic stage of bacteria and biofilm formation. In the planktonic stage, bacteria attach to an inert substrate and undergo apoptosis to create a matrix for biofilm. Biofilm formation is then commenced. Biofilm is characterized by the bacteria entering a no-growth or sessile phase, which makes them even more resistant to antibiotics that depend on replication to carry out their effect. Biofilm is made of an extracellular polymeric substance, or exopolysaccharide. Antibiotics become less effective due to the difficulty of penetrating the biofilm and bacteria lowering their metabolic rate. Associated conditions with osteomyelitis in adults include orthopedic manifestations such as septic arthritis and abscesses, while associated medical conditions include immunosuppression, dialysis, IV drug use, diabetes, poor nutrition, and vascular disease. Regarding the causative organisms for osteomyelitis, these organisms vary by the age of the patient, but again, Staph aureus is most common in adults. In newborns younger than 4 months old, causative organisms include Staph aureus, Enterobacter species, and group A and B Streptococcus species. In children 4 months to 4 years old, causative organisms include Staph aureus, group A Streptococcus species, Kingella kingae, and Enterobacter species. In children and adolescents 4 years old to adults, 
causative organisms include Staph aureus in 80% of patients, but also include group A streptococcus species, Haemophilus influenzae, and Enterobacter species. And finally, in adults, causative organisms include Staph aureus, and occasionally Enterobacter or streptococcus species. Some of the more unusual organisms causing osteomyelitis include Salmonella in sickle cell anemia patients, though Staph aureus is still the most common, Pseudomonas in IV drug abusers with acromioclavicular or sternoclavicular joint infections or puncture wounds through rubber-soled shoes, Bartonella in HIV-AIDS patients following cat scratches or bites, fungal osteomyelitis in the immunosuppressed, and patients on long-term IV medications or parenteral nutrition, and tuberculosis, whose manifestations include POTS disease. Classification of adult osteomyelitis may be based on either timing or by the anatomic location and host type. Classifying osteomyelitis by timing may be either classified as acute, subacute, or chronic. Acute osteomyelitis is diagnosed within two weeks, subacute is within one to several months, and chronic may be after several months. The Cierney Mater classification of osteomyelitis classifies osteomyelitis by its anatomic location host type, and defines the treatment and prognosis. The anatomic location is divided into stage 1, 2, 3, or 4. Stage 1 of osteomyelitis would be medullary osteomyelitis. Stage 2 would be superficial osteomyelitis. Stage 3 would be localized osteomyelitis. And stage 4 would be diffuse osteomyelitis. Regarding the host types, hosts are classified as A, B, or C with types B being subdivided into type BL and type BS. Type A hosts are normal. Type B hosts are compromised, with type BL being locally compromised hosts and type BS being systemically compromised hosts. And in type C hosts, the treatment is worse to the patient than the infection is. Moving on to discuss the clinical presentation of these patients, when collecting the patient's history, it is important to note the duration of the condition any prior treatments, and to characterize the host, notably if the patient is immunocompromised. Patients may present with symptoms of pain and fever, which is more common in acute osteomyelitis. On physical examination, vital signs should be checked for fever, tachycardia, and hypotension suggestive of sepsis. Inspection may reveal erythema, tenderness, and edema, which are commonly seen. A draining sinus tract may also be present, which is more common in chronic osteomyelitis, and if it is able to probe to the bone through the sinus tract, chronic osteomyelitis is present. Motion of the extremity should also be evaluated. A limp and or pain inhibition with weight bearing or motion may be present, and the joints above and below the area of concern should be assessed. The neurovascular exam is also important, and an assessment of vascular insufficiency both locally and systemically should be undertaken. On imaging, radiographs are recommended with orthogonal plane radiographs of the affected extremity. Findings may be different in acute versus chronic cases. Acutely, imaging findings may lag behind the infection by about two weeks, and bone loss must be 50% before it becomes evident on plain films. In chronic cases, bone lucency, a sclerotic rim, osteopenia, periosteal reaction, and lysis around hardware may be noted. Sequestrum may also be seen, which is devitalized bone that serves as a nidus for infection and the involucrum may also be noted, which is formation of new bone around an area of bony necrosis. The sensitivity and specificity of radiographs is variable. CT scans may be indicated to assist in diagnosis and surgical planning by identifying necrotic bone.
The sensitivity and specificity of CT scans may be affected by hardware artifact and scatter. MRIs may be indicated to assist in diagnosis and again in surgical planning and are the best test for diagnosing early osteomyelitis and localizing infection. Important views include T2 sequences that will show bone and soft tissue edema. Important findings to be aware of include the penumbra sign on T1 images, which is a central dark abscess with a bright internal wall and a dark external sclerotic rim. The sensitivity and specificity of MRI, if negative, rules out osteomyelitis, but if positive, may overestimate the extent of osteomyelitis. Nuclear medicine scans may also be considered, such as technetium bone scans and gallium scans. Technetium bone scans are indicated when radiographs are normal and the MRI is not an option, and the sensitivity is high, but it is not specific. If it is negative, though, it rules out osteomyelitis. Gallium scans are indicated for diabetic foot or if MRI is not an option. Regarding the sensitivity and specificity of gallium scans, cellulitis may cause a false positive, but if negative, rules out osteomyelitis. Moving on to discuss other diagnostic studies, including laboratory analysis, microbiology, and histology. Laboratory analysis may be undertaken with a leukocyte count, ESR, CRP, and blood cultures. Leukocyte count, or the WBC count, is only elevated in about one-third of acute osteomyelitis patients. The erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or ESR, is usually elevated in both acute and chronic cases, being elevated in 90%. Notably, a decrease in ESR after treatment is a favorable prognostic indicator. C-reactive protein, or CRP, is the most sensitive test with an elevation in 97% of cases. This decreases faster than ESR in successfully treated patients. Blood cultures are often negative, but may be used to guide therapy for hematogenous osteomyelitis. Microbiology studies may also be useful, but note that sinus tract cultures are not reliable for guiding antibiotic therapy, and culture of the bone is the gold standard for guiding antibiotic therapy. On histology, acute osteomyelitis may be seen with live osteocytes with numerous acute inflammatory cells like neutrophils, whereas chronic osteomyelitis has no nuclei in the osteocytes with fibrosis of the marrow and chronic inflammatory cells such as lymphocytes. Differential diagnosis of osteomyelitis should include benign tumors, malignant tumors, or a healing fracture. Remember, biopsy all infections and culture all tumors. This is for both benign tumors and malignant tumors. Again, biopsy all infections and culture all tumors. Moving on to discuss treatment options, both non-operative and operative, we will first discuss the goals of treatment. Remember that success of treatment is dependent on various factors, including patient factors, injury factors, infection location, and other factors affecting the prognosis and treatment. Important patient factors include immunocompetence and nutritional status of the patient. Injury factors include the severity of the injury as demonstrated by segmental bone loss, the infection location is important as metaphyseal infections heal better than mid-diaphyseal infections, and some other factors affecting prognosis and treatment include residual foreign materials or ischemic and necrotic tissues within the area of infection, inappropriate antibiotic coverage, and a lack of patient cooperation or desire. Non-operative treatment options include suppressive antibiotics and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Suppressive antibiotics are indicated when operative intervention is not feasible and hyperbaric oxygen therapy is indicated as an adjunct in refractory osteomyelitis. Operative treatment with irrigation and debridement followed by organism-specific antibiotics or with amputation may also be considered. 
Irrigation and debridement with organism-specific antibiotics is indicated for acute osteomyelitis that fails to improve on IV antibiotics. It is also indicated for subacute osteomyelitis, abscess formation, and in chronic osteomyelitis, which may present with a draining sinus tract. Amputation may be indicated with a chronic infection with pervasive wound and bone damage that is unable to be salvaged. Regarding these treatment techniques, we will discuss antibiotic therapy, irrigation and debridement, and amputation as treatment options. Beginning with antibiotic therapy, antibiotics should be tailored to a specific organism, preferably after a bone biopsy is obtained. Chronic suppressive antibiotics may be useful in patients who are immunocompromised or in whom surgery is not feasible. High rates of recurrence are noted if suppressive antibiotics are discontinued. Moving on to discuss irrigation and debridement, we will talk about soft tissue work, bony work, hardware removal, dead space management, instrumentation, and the surgical outcomes. Regarding the soft tissue, all devitalized and necrotic tissue should be removed. An extensive debridement is essential to eradicate the infection. Regarding the bone work, sequestrum must be eliminated from the body or infection is likely to recur. Bone should be debrided until punctate bleeding is seen, which is also known as the paprika sign. Hardware removal should also be undertaken and any non-essential hardware should be removed. Regarding dead space management, the goal is to replace dead bone and scar tissue with vascularized tissue. Options may include vascularized bone grafts, local tissue flaps or free flaps, antibiotic impregnated acrylic beads or PMMA beads, and vacuum assisted wound closure which is noted to improve wound healing and dead space closure in multiple ways. Firstly, it removes interstitial fluids. It also eliminates superficial purulence and slime, allows arterioles to dilate, which allows granulation tissue to proliferate, and decreases capillary afterload to promote inflow of blood. A mechanical force on the wound edge is also noted to draw them in. Regarding instrumentation, bony stability is also required for successful eradication of infection. External fixation is preferred to internal fixation, and surgical fixation techniques may include PMMA, or antibiotic impregnated acrylic intermedullary nails, noting that the peak antibiotic elution is 24 hours after placement, but the duration of antibiotic elution is generally up to four months. The Elizarov technique may also be considered, as may an intermedullary nail technique with or without external fixation, the masculade technique, or in situ reconstruction. The mechanism relating to the importance of instrumentation is thought to be related to improved angiogenesis. Outcomes of these surgical procedures show that patients often require staged approaches with multiple debridements and delayed soft tissue coverage. When combined with postoperative antibiotics tailored to a specific organism, treatment is often successful. The last treatment technique we will discuss is amputation, and amputation should occur at the level that will eradicate the infected tissue to a healing tissue with the capacity to heal. Complications of adult osteomyelitis include the persistence or extension of infection, amputation, sepsis, and malignant transformation. The incidence of malignant transformation is 1% in chronic osteomyelitis cases, most commonly being squamous cell carcinoma, otherwise known as a margillin's ulcer. The risk factors for this are a chronic draining sinus tract, and the treatment is with wide surgical resection. The prognosis of osteomyelitis in adults is often poor despite surgical debridements and long-term antibiotics, the recurrence rate of chronic osteomyelitis in adults is 30%, with a poor prognosis noted in patients with major nutritional or systemic disorders. Now that we've gotten a general overview of this topic, let's review a few questions to see how it's been tested in the past. Question 1. 
Which bacterial stage describes free-floating bacteria that bind to an inert substrate allowing for apoptosis and the creation of a biofilm matrix? Is it 1. The planktonic stage, 2. Sessile stage, 3. Maturation stage, 4. Metabolic stage, or 5. Dispersion stage? The correct answer is 1. Planktonic stage. Planktonic bacteria are the free-floating bacteria that spread, often leading to sepsis and active infection. They attach to an inert substrate and undergo apoptosis to create a matrix for a biofilm in its planktonic stage. A biofilm occurs when adherent cells become embedded within an extracellular matrix that is composed of extracellular polymeric substances. The development of a bacterial biofilm is a multi-stage process. In the first step, free-floating individual bacteria bind to a substrate which is known as the planktonic stage. After attachment, quorum sensing, or cell-to-cell -cell communication, allows for the maturation of the biofilm and expression of its genes that activate virulence factors, which is known as the sessile stage. These microbial cells growing within the biofilm are physiologically distinct from planktonic cells. The formed glycocalyx allows the biofilm to adhere to a prosthesis while making it resilient to antibiotics. Typically, prosthetic explant is indicated with an infection greater than 4 weeks old due to biofilm infection, which has invaded the prosthetic bone interface. Masri et al. prospectively reviewed 49 patients undergoing a modified two-stage exchange arthroplasty for infected total hip and knee arthroplasties using the prosthesis of antibiotic-loaded acrylic cement with tobramycin and vancomycin. They reported on the intraarticular concentrations of tobramycin and vancomycin at the time of removal. They concluded that the dose of vancomycin in the cement did not influence the elution of either tobramycin or vancomycin, and they recommended the use of at least 3.6 grams of tobramycin and 1 gram of vancomycin per package of bone cement. Nana et al. reviewed the high affinity of microorganisms to adhere to foreign materials commonly used in orthopedics, including cobalt chromium, titanium, polyethylene, and polymethylmethacrylate, or PMMA, cement, for forming biofilms. They report that Staph aureus and Staph epidermidis, which are the most common biofilm-forming bacteria in orthopedics, and when combined with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, represent nearly 75% of biofilm infections, they conclude that while no current guidelines exist for treating these infections, recent studies have shown that biofilm growth can be fully inhibited when PMMA is mixed with both daptomycin and gentamicin. McNamara et al. reviewed the mechanism of vancomycin. They report on its increased use due to the growing resistance of many gram-positive bacteria to beta-lactam antibiotics. They conclude that unlike penicillins and cephalosporins, cross-resistance with vancomycin does not develop and it possesses activity against nearly all gram-positive bacteria with no usefulness against gram-negative bacilli. Regarding the incorrect answers, answer 1, sessile stage, is incorrect as the sessile stage involves the formation of biofilm and its expression. Answer 3 is incorrect, as the maturation phase is the development of the sessile no-growth biofilm. Answer 4 is incorrect, as metabolic phase is not a distinct stage in biofilm formation. And answer 5 is incorrect, as dispersion is the release of free-floating planktonic bacteria from a mature biofilm. Next question. A 60-year-old male presents with a large necrotic ulcerative lesion over the anterior tibia over the past 6 months. He admits to a remote history of a mid-shaft tibia fracture treated with open reduction internal fixation which was complicated by a chronically draining wound near the location of the lesion. Biopsy of the ulcerative lesion reveals squamous cell carcinoma. 
Which of the following is the likely precursor to this malignant lesion? Is it 1. Adamantinoma, 2. Osteofibrous dysplasia, 3. Chronic osteomyelitis, 4. Eosinophilic granuloma, or 5. A cortical desmoid. The correct answer is 3. Chronic osteomyelitis. This patient has developed a marginalized ulcer, otherwise known as squamous cell carcinoma, due to a chronically draining sinus tract in the setting of chronic osteomyelitis, likely due to infected underlying hardware. Squamous cell carcinoma, or SCC, is the most common type of malignant tumor deriving from chronic osteomyelitis. The most frequently affected site is the tibia followed by the femur. Diagnosis is generally confirmed by biopsy at all suspicious wound sites. The rate of chronic osteomyelitis transformed to SCC is low, with most studies citing about a 1% rate. The recommended treatment is generally amputation, since many experts agree that the carcinomatous transformation of chronic bone infections can lead to progressive